Good morning, everyone. It is Sunday, November the 3rd, 2019. It is currently 7.57 a.m. Central Time. Well, I'm getting ready for church this morning, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to try something. I'm going to pull up the Sunday School lesson that I taught last week at Victory Baptist Church and simply play the audio. Now, this is kind of a new feature I'm trying to get used to using on Spreaker, so maybe it will work, maybe it will not, but we will give it a try so this is what we're going to do. I'm just going to simply turn off my mic, hit play on the audio, and play last week's Sunday School lesson, and hopefully it will benefit someone. We'll have to continue to try this. I will try to monitor the audio on a different device, and if it doesn't work, well, we'll have to figure out why. All right, so here we go. Let's go to Victory Baptist Church last Sunday, and we continue to talk about this problem that the Bible clearly teaches we're justified by faith, but at the same time clearly teaches we're going to be judged according to our works, and we've been trying to find a solution. Here we go. Last week, Victory Baptist Church, the Sunday School Hour. All right, we have a lot to do this morning, so let's jump right in. All right. We know that we have been working now, I don't know, this is like part 15, part 16, I don't even know how many parts now, dealing with the issue that the Bible seems to clearly teach that we are justified by faith, however, we're going to be judged according to our works, okay? Now that apparent contradiction, that apparent tension, uh, creates all kinds of theological questions. Now, to be fair... Most churches don't believe it does create a problem. How they, they accomplish that, I, I do not know. I think the only way to accomplish that is to just try to give a simple answer and everyone moves on. But that doesn't work, especially when you get to a passage like Romans chapter 2, verse 6, where it clearly states that God is going to judge us according to our deeds. And a book that clearly seems to teach that we're justified by faith. That The problem there is, is too... Too much in your face, it's too blunt to be ignored. So we have been working on solutions, all right? Uh, we have started, uh, we looked at the book of four views on trying to resolve this. We are up to the third view. View number one was, uh, it seems very straightforward, and it seems one that we want to embrace, right? Uh, view number one is, yes, Christians will be judged according to their works, but it will be at the rewards judgment not at the final judgment. Therefore, we are justified by faith alone, and judgment according to works has nothing to do with our salvation, only has something to do with rewards. That sounds so good. It is helpful. The only problem is it doesn't quite resolve all the problems. I'm not going to go and review all of that, but you, you get that. View number two, very popular view, the view that pretty much all Christians just inevitably, all Protestant Christians, inevitably lean to. Even if they claim they don't, they will make statements claiming, showing they do. View number two is simply, yes, you're justified by faith. However, you better have works because at the final judgment, your works will be judged and your works will either prove your salvation or prove your condemnation. It's going to serve as proof or evidence, okay? Now, again, that at, at first you may, I think sometimes in, your, in the Christian mind, that sounds okay until you really start thinking about it because what you're saying is I'm justified by faith, but I need works. If I don't have works, I'm not justified. 
which means works are a part of justification, even if you try to claim that they're not. And the biggest problem with view number two was what? And this is, this is going to be a major theme today. What's the biggest problem with view number two? The definition of justification. I want to keep stressing that. How we define justification is going to literally be the key to this entire discussion. How do we define justification? Do we define justification um, that, and remember, what's the key elements of our definition of justification that creates all the problems? What is the key elements of our definition of justification? The key elements of our definition is that justification is, number one, what? A legal act, right? It's a legal act whereby God declares us to be righteous, not by imparting righteousness, but by imputing righteousness. And what does that mean? He doesn't change us on the inside. He only declares us to be righteous. If that definition is right, the evidential view is wrong. Because what evidence can you give to prove your justification if your justification is based off the imputed righteousness of Christ? The evidence you would provide would be what? The righteousness of Christ. His active and passive obedience which is imputed to our account. Therefore, the evidential view doesn't make sense. However, Christians fall into that trap all the time. Right? What do we say? How do you know if someone's a Christian? What do we say all the time? You've heard it a million times. What do you need to show if someone's truly a Christian? By, your, by their watch, you'll know them? Fruits, right? We always say you've got to show fruit. Fruit. Well, wait a minute. What fruit is there of justification? The fruit of justification would be Christ's passive and active obedience, right? Does that make sense? Well, they're asking for fruit to show what? Sanctification. Now this, on Wednesday we took a little detour and everybody, I think everybody here left here going, oh, he gave me an answer. And I told you it wasn't an answer, right? It sounded good and my fear was everybody was just going to leave here going, we resolved the problem and I'm like, no, we did not. We did not resolve the problem. I only gave you a theory that we still have to prove. And so I gave everyone to go home and, and, and prove it, right? So I'm not going to ask for everyone's work because if you didn't prove it, then, you, then you, you, you just accepted an answer without really doing any work because we did not answer the problem. So let me explain again what we stated on Wednesday. Based off our definition of justification, remember, based off our definition of justification, the only solution to this dilemma, because how can I be judged according to my works if justification is what we call, d- define it to be. It can't work. Everybody understand that? And all the sermons that I heard from churches all over the place, they never went to the definition of justification. They came up with solutions that would literally contradict the definition of justification they would give on a sermon on justification. You can't do that. All right? So let me make this very clear. If, Our definition of justification is right. And please note, I keep stressing the word if, all right? If our definition is right. Then, if you come, uh, then the only solution I can come up with is this. Yes, I'll be judged according to my works. And why will I be judged according to my works? Because the Bible absolutely 
says I will. But, according to our definition of justification, the works that I will be judged by will be the works that have been imputed to my account. So God will judge the works of Christ, which are imputed to me, and therefore I'll be declared to be what? Righteous, therefore my works will be good enough to get me into heaven. Now, that sounds good, but we have literally no historical basis for that view. All right? Nobody in Christianity is going to agree with us. All right? And we're not going to find a verse that says God judges the works of Christ on our behalf. We're not going to find one. So what we're doing is we're taking our definition of of justification involving imputation and going, that's the only way to make it work. Nobody else does. The the Four Views book doesn't come up with this view. Nobody comes up with this view. So we're we're in very questionable ground to be there, but I don't know why other people wouldn't bring this idea up because it's the only thing that works. So we're going to have to... We're going to have to deal with this. But our definition of justification precludes, it destroys the evidential view. Everybody understands that. You can't say, look, look, Diane, you claim to be a Christian. Now, when you stand before God, he's going to judge your works, and your works are either going to prove you're a Christian or not prove a Christian. And I keep saying this in sermon after sermon. She should say, wait a minute. If if justification is a legal act where God declares me righteous by imputing the righteousness of Christ, what works do I need to prove that? And the answer would be, yeah, I need no works. Now, what you're asking is she needs works to prove what? Sanctification. Now, here is the question we're going to be working on today, all right? And and we're going to take a couple of detours to get there, but listen to me carefully. We have to determine the link, if there is one, between justification and sanctification. Are they linked together or are they separate? Let me ask the question another way. Can a person who is justified not be sanctified? Now, Your first thing is going to be, no, a person's justified will be sanctified. But then what? Please note what you just did. You just linked them together, making the argument that if you're truly justified, you will prove your justification by your sanctification. Well, wait a minute. If justification is according to our definition, technically, you can be justified and not be sanctified which no Christian believes. Right? Because you're literally saying that someone can believe in Jesus and literally spend their life as a murderer, a drunkard, a drug addict, rapist, whatever, and they're still saved. And nobody wants to go there. Now, if I name venial sins, everybody's okay. If I start naming big sins, everyone's like, nope, they can't be. Venial sins, you're good to go, right? Big sins, you're not. And we always interesting the way we do that. So the, you, see, you see how we kind of came up with a solution, but we really, we're really walking right back into a different problem. And view number three of the book is going to demonstrate that. Remember, view number one, we got view number one of what the book is, which is we will be just according to our works at the rewards judgment, not the final. 
Works two, or view number two is you will be judged according to your works and you hope your works are good enough because your works are going to either prove your salvation or prove that you're lost. View number three is that Paul teaches both. He's okay with it. We have to be okay with it. That's not much help, is it? It's not really a solution. So, now, I'll say all this. That's, that's kind of a review. But I have to keep reviewing this to make sure we're all on the same page. But this week, we saw something interesting happen in culture that literally is connected to what we've been talking about for 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 weeks now. It feels like forever. Um, and because these, these theological issues have real-world implications. Let me give you an example. All right. On well, it was supposed to be Thursday night at 11 p.m. Central Time, our time, Kanye West was supposed to release his new album, Jesus is King. All right, everyone. He was supposed to release it in September. It didn't really. It's been delayed, 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 because it's typical Kanye. All right. So everybody was waiting for Kanye to release an album. Now, whether you care about Kanye or don't care about Kanye is irrelevant because this is becoming a. It's a cultural thing now. Because Kanye West, some would classify him one of the best rappers of all time. We can get into a huge debate about that. Um, he's made uh, his 808s and Heartbreaks album, some would argue, changed rap forever, which I think probably you can make an argument there. Um, he's, he's considered a genius. He's considered a special in production. He's, he, he's basically a musical genius. But at, at, as he's been moving forward, he's been kind of changing as a person. And he now has professed and claimed that he is now a Christian. All right? Um, I've listened to hours and hours and hours of interviews with him. At times he sounds very, you know, okay, that, that sounds really good. And there's other things he says, you know, mm, I don't know. But this is a, a big deal because if you've ever listened to any of Kanye's albums, you know uh, they're not very Christian, okay? Filled with obscenity, obscenity, obscenity. I couldn't read even lyrics here because you'd be like, whoa, uh, you can't say that. All right, some really messed up stuff. So Kanye is going to make a Christian album. Now, first people were kind of like, okay, this is a joke. Okay, he's, <laughs> this is going to be bad. All right, so everybody was waiting and waiting. Okay, here is Kanye. He's going to articulate a Christian understanding. How is this going to work? All right, well, this is immediately, and he even makes, he even goes after Christians on the album because he says the people who are going to judge him are going to be Christians, okay, which... He's right, because all of the argument is within the Christian world. And this is, this is how it's gone. It's, you basically have two camps dealing with Kanye's new album, which the album actually dropped Friday afternoon because he didn't do it when he was supposed to, but that's typical Kanye. Okay, he finally drops the album, all right? Here's what happens. A good portion of Christianity was like, yes! He's a Christian. He's now a Christian artist. This is a Christian album. It's amazing. It's great. Praise the Lord. And then you had a number of other Christians who were like, well, wait a minute. He claims to be a Christian. However, we're going to have to wait and see. We have to wait and see what he's going to do. We have to wait and see what he's going to do. And this created a big debate all over social media. Because some of the people who are like who believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, who they would post, someone in our church made a profession of faith, praise the Lord, they're saved. They weren't going to do the same for Kanye. Because now Kanye needs to 
prove it by his actions. Well, wait a minute. Is he saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone? Or is he saved by proving it? Well, if you say he's proving it, what are you literally going after? By grace alone. And so it was interesting to just see, you had some people, very, very prominent people who would be accepted in the Reformed world going, wait, well, we got to wait and see. (laughs) What? What? We got to wait and see? We got to wait and see? We got to wait and see. So he's not a Christian yet, and until he does enough good things to prove their test. Well, see, that's, you see, so basically, what's the basis of, 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 of salvation when you start doing that? You're making the basis of salvation sanctification, not justification. And I understand everyone's hesitancy. I mean, he's known for making, I mean, saying some pretty messed up things. I understand that. And so, and, you know, he's got now everyone, everyone in the big Christian world wants, you know, Joel Olstein wants him to come to Houston. And, uh, I mean, all these Christian leaders are like, yeah, you know, Kanye, I mean, this is like, you know, come to my church, you know, be a part of our group because, you know, it's going to be a big deal. So I, I, so, and so people are like, well, if he goes to Osteen's church, then he's not a Christian, you know. And so, oh boy, it's, you know, and theologically, you know, where is he theologically? I understand hesitancy, but if he put his faith in Christ, and he's trusting in Christ alone, is that salvation or not? You see how this plays out? You see how now that's a real-world practical example of this theological problem. And when you start off, you're just like, hey, you're justified by faith. You're going to be just according to works, but don't worry about it. You see, that sounds so good, but because churches won't take the time to struggle with these issues, the people are incapable of making right judgments when it comes to real-world implication. That's why the sermon from Southside, when they preached on I almost lost my mind. He didn't give anybody an answer, so nobody in that church even has the ability to how to process something like this. How do you process it? Now, so, so basically the way some Christians act is you made a profession. Now, what do we need to wait and see? Now, I agree. I don't want to tell anyone they're a Christian because I don't know. And, then, and the truth is we know many will make a profession and not live it out. But does that mean they're saved or not saved? That, these raise major questions, major questions. So we have to figure all of these things out. So. On Wednesday, we looked at the Catholic Catechism to look at the idea of infused righteousness. We looked at the London Baptist to see the idea of imputed righteousness. And as of right now, we are going with the London Baptist definition of justification, unless we change our entire definition. And trust me, even if you change your definition, the infused definition is no help at all. It sounds good. It's It's just as convoluted. All right, when you get into the Catholic system, you're like, okay, wait a minute. All right, I got, right, okay, I, I, I got grace, but then I can lose grace. Then I got to get the grace back. I'm in a state of grace. Okay, well, now I'm not, if I commit venial, I'm in a state. If I commit a moral, I'm not in a state. I got to do penance and confession to try to get back into a state. And if I'm in a state, then maybe I'll get to purgatory. Right? And then I can do indulgences to try to lessen my time. Oh, man, I need a mathematical formula to figure. So all the systems are convoluted. We have to try to figure out what is best. So 
we're going to go back to view number three. Remember, view number three is simply Paul, uh, Paul teaches both. We should believe both. That's not good. But this is what's going to happen in view number three. Everybody listening? He's going to basically make the argument that no matter what we do, we're going to walk right back into another problem. So what we said on Wednesday, this is going to lead us right back into a problem. And I'll make sure everyone understands. The problem is this. What do we do with sanctification? That's the issue. All right? So here we go. Remember, I'm not going to review everything in, in, in view number three. The sermon's online, so we'll start here. Remember, he entitles this section, Status Accorded or Person Transformed. Status Accorded or Person Transformed. Now, you're like, what does that mean? He's saying, your status, is it, a, is it do you have a status based off the fact that you have imputed righteousness or... Are you a person who is transformed? Protestants go all over the place here, right? Because we claim we're saved by faith alone, by, by Christ alone, but at the same time, what do we demand? Transformation. And if you demand transformation, do you believe in justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, and by grace alone? Do you actually? We say we do, but if you demand transformation... Our definition of justification has nothing to do with a transformation, right? Everybody should understand that the Protestant definition of justification does not demand transformation. It's a, it's a legal declaration that does not do anything to you other than accounts you righteous. It does not make you righteous, all right? Now, that comes into how do we understand regeneration? How do we understand sanctification, all right? Here we go. Now, this is how the author states this. I refer here to the long-running dispute between Reformed and Catholic theology on this point, usually referred to as the issue whether righteousness is imputed or infused. Now, Wednesday, we covered both. Is the righteousness of the Christian always an alien righteousness, something that the Christian never actually has. Can the status of righteousness never be affirmed of the sinner except as a status attributed to one who will never be less or other than undeserving? That's an important question. Is it, do we believe that a person will be accounted righteousness but they will never be anything other than undeserving. They will never be actually righteous. They will only be declared righteous. Or, or is the promise of the gospel that the believing sinner will become righteous? Or the obligation of the gospel that the believing sinner will act righteously? So he's giving us some options. Option one, you're just attributed righteousness. You never actually, you never become it. You don't ever deserve it. You never reach anything. Option number two, the believing sinner will become righteous. Actual righteousness will begin to occur. View number three, that the the gospel gives you an obligation that you will act righteous. Attributed, become, 
or act. That's kind of the way they're going. There's kind of three. I know there's similarities there, but you get the idea. All right? Now, everyone in this room is going to have different ideas, but, you know, you got which I'm telling you, whichever idea you want to say you agree with, be careful because all of them run into massive roadblocks. I mean, major problems are coming. You say, nope, just all alien righteousness. That's all it is. Alien righteousness, you don't have to become righteous. I can find you 9,000 verses that are going to tell you otherwise. What does James say? If you don't have works, is that a saving faith? Now you've got to argue that a dead faith is a saving faith. All right? And I can, go, I can go scripture after scripture. In fact, he's getting ready to give us a list of scriptures that's going to create all kinds of other questions. In the one case, the Reformed concern is that any emphasis given to the believing sinner as righteous opens the door to the idea of salvation as something earned to doctrines of merit. All right? So for the Reformed view, they were concerned, look, 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 look. It's, I believe, I'm accounted righteousness. It's not anything I do. And the Reformed concern was making it works-based. And that Reformed concern led to the Protestant concern of, hey, it's not according to works, it's not according to works. That's what the Reformers wanted to get away from. All right? Sounds good if that's all you talk about. Right? If that's all we talk about, you're, you know, you get that. Because you've all been in a Protestant church during the altar call, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And then 30 days later, it, you're doing this, this, and this, you're not saved. Well, am I saved based on what I do? Am I, can someone give me a straight answer? I mean, you've all been there, right? It's, it's like... It, it, when you first, when you're first wanting to become a Christian, just believe in Jesus and you get it all. Amen. Whew, I'm so good. And then you're like, wait a minute, what are you doing? You're still living with your boyfriend? You got to move out. Well, why? Well, because you're you're, you're not saved. Well, well, you said I just believe in Jesus. Wait, you're still drinking? You can't be doing. Wait, you're still going to the strip club? You you got to stop. You you can't do these things. You can't do that. Well, am I saved by grace alone? Well, if you're truly saved, you'll, you'll, you'll stop those things. Okay, but if I don't stop those things, am I saved? Well, no, you're proving you're not saved. You see what comes... And, and so, you see the struggle. Now, on the, so that's the reform. The reform view is only is concerned mainly by not making it works-based. And I understand that. However, they make it works-based later on. On the Catholic side... The case can be made that while the Christian life begins with faith and always depends on faith, it is never less than the divine intention that faith should be expressed also in faithfulness. The Catholic side is it begins on faith. It it, it includes faith the entire thing. However, the intention is you will live it out. That's the Catholic view. That sounds very Protestant. Even though Protestants claim they're not Catholic, it sounds very Catholic. <clears throat> they argue that the, the word for faith embraces both meanings. Faith can be, yeah, faith, just faith alone, or faith can mean this idea of working, okay? That Paul always intended, now this is very important, Okay. 
um, that faith should be expressed also in faithfulness, that Paul always intended that faith should operate effectively through love. They make the argument, Paul always said, hey, if you have faith, express it, live it, demonstrate it. He quotes, and I'm not going to go through, I'm going to, a lot of these, I will quote some of these long. That one is Galatians 5, 6, he talks about. And then, of course, we have James, who says, faith by itself, if it has no works, is what? Is dead. Right? That seems to include what? If If your faith is real, works. So how do you know? How do you know if you have true faith? Works. That proved that that what that what's involved therefore in, in, in the process works. How, how do you get around James? Right? Okay, we have to we have to continue on this. Here we find out now. Please know what the book does. Here we find ourselves caught in the same dilemma as referred to in the opening section. See, you think you get out of the problem, and then you end up. Right back into the problem. Now, this, this see, this just proves to me how comp. This why when I, the sermons I listen to from churches all over the place on this subject, I, I just I, I couldn't handle it anymore because I'm like, why? How can they not see how complicated this is? But this is just this is what they do. Hey, this this uh, you know this Sunday we're in Romans two six. I know it says he judged according to works. Don't really worry about it. You know. You're, you're justified by faith. Now let's just move on in the book of Romans. Okay, everyone? And everyone's like, amen. And then he finishes the sermon in 30-something minutes and everybody thinks it's a wonderful sermon. It's a wonderful sermon because you didn't learn anything. It's a problem. Right? You see why we're back into the same dilemma? You say you're saved by faith alone, but yet James seems to argue that faith alone isn't sufficient. What do you have to have with it? Works. How does this work? Okay, let's continue. That there are two emphases. This is a point he's going to make. There are two emphases in Paul that his post-Reformation followers have found difficult to hold together. Now, we've been talking about the two problems are justified by faith and judged according to works. He's going to point out there's really... Two other problems, right? And one of them will be similar, but we'll we'll see how. He says there's two issues that post-Reformation Christians had problems with. Not pre-Reformation Christians, post-Reformation Christians. Pre-Reformation, they just went with the Catholic view. Post-Reformation, they've been trying to figure it out since, and I will argue we haven't figured it out since. In fact, we've already read in this book that there is no consensus on this answer. And and my issue is not as there's no consensus Christians are not consistent. That's the biggest issue. All right, here we go. On the one hand, there is little doubt that Paul used the verb justify to refer to God's justifying the sinner, vindicating the ungodly, acquitting the guilty. All right? He says there's little doubt that when Paul used the verb justify, he refers to God's justifying the sinner, vindicating the ungodly, and acquitting the guilty. That sounds good, right? Now, he doesn't talk anything about imputation there, but all right, we get the idea. The gospel for Paul was that God's saving righteousness reached out to and embraced all, Gentile as well as Jew, 
simply on the basis that they trusted and relied on him, not on anything they had done or achieved. He says that seems clear, right? So this is justification by faith. Now he's got some scriptures here. We'll look at a few of these. Go to Romans 4, which Romans 4 is probably the most important chapter on this over and over again. Romans chapter 4, everybody there? All right. <clears throat> he skips verse 6, but I'm going to read it. Uh, go to Romans chapter 4. We'll start in verse 5. Right, we'll just start in verse 1 and read this, because this, so, this is such a foundational section. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then, that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works... He hath whereof to glory, but not before God. It seems pretty clear. What is he arguing? How was Abraham justified? That's the argument, right? He continues. For what saith the scriptures? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for... Right? Was Abraham righteous in his actions? Not all the time. He lied. Did he not lie? Did he not doubt? He did one wonderful thing, right? When he offered up Isaac, everybody's like, woo, see, that's it. But he did a lot of other wrong things, so did the one good thing cancel out all the bad? What what ultimately made him righteous? He believed God. And it was counted unto him as righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If it's based off work, then basically you're getting what you... You earn. Verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Please note, 5 now leaves Abraham and moves it to, well, no, verse 5 moves it to anyone else. Okay? Then then he's going to give us a second Old Testament example. David. Even as David, was David perfect? (laughs) No. Was David messed up? Yeah. Would David even be accepted in most churches? Well, come on. We know. Right? You wouldn't want your kid being taught Sunday school by a man who committed adultery and had someone murdered. Okay? But even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man whom God imputeth righteousness... Please know what word does it use? Imputeth. There's the idea of imputation. If you look up the Greek word there, I, I don't have it. It's, it's, it starts with an L the way it's uh, lagajamai. I can't remember how you pronounce it. Okay, I'm messing that all up. I don't have a Greek in front of me, so I can't say. But if you, if you do look it up, you're gonna get, it's going to talk about being accredited to are counted as, which goes with our definition of justification. This is scriptural support for our definition of justification. Does everybody understand that? All right. Um, so you get that. Uh, even as David, verse 6, um, also describeth the blessedness of the man whom God imputeth righteousness without work, saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. 
All right. Now, if you jump down to verse 16, go down to verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end uh, the pro- uh, to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed not to that only which is of the law but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all as it is written uh, i have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed even god who quickened the dead and calleth these things which be not as though they were who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not not his own body now dead when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform, and therefore it was imputed for him for righteousness. There's imputed righteousness, right? Um, so you, you see, that's pretty clear, is it not? Yes. Okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah, and it seems to, to carry it further on to even us. All right. Now, everybody got that? That sounds good, does it not? Now, remember, he says we're going to get to a problem because Paul's going to seem to teach two different ideas. The first idea seems to be what? How are you made righteous? By faith. And when you say made righteous, are you actually changed? No, it's simply imputed to you. All right. They continue. Faith was... Faith was what made it possible for the sinner to partake in that saving righteousness, and faith remained only remained on the human side, the only medium for reception of and response to, uh, to God's grace. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. All right. So basically, if you have faith, you're accounted righteous. End of story. All right. And please note that right there, what we just read. That is key to understanding something like Matthew 7. Because Matthew 7, you have all these people doing great works who still go to hell. So what we, they didn't obviously have faith in the right God. They were false prophets if you look at the context there. That resolves that kind of problem. But, now here's where he's going to give the other side. On the other hand, however... We can hardly ignore Paul's equal emphasis on the transforming character of divine grace. Paul seems to say, you're made righteous or you're declared righteous by faith. However, he then says, you will be transformed by that grace. This is where the problem becomes complicated. There's going to be a lot of scripture here. So we're going to look at all of these. Let's see what he goes on to say here. In the present discussion, this is the point that needs to be brought out more clearly. Justification may be the most important image from the beginning and end of the process, but the in-between stage of the process, usually distinguished as sanctification, has to be reckoned with as well. All right, so he's like, okay, we start with justification. In justification, I'm declared what? Perfectly righteous. By what? 
faith alone. Boom. All right. Now, if, let's say we get to the end of the process. Now, please note he's using the word process, which Protestants don't like. He's not saying justification necessarily is a process, but he's definitely seeing salvation and totality as a process. He says, now, if you get to the end and you say, okay, I'm going to somehow my, the end is going to deal with justification, right? And then, and then that's where he doesn't say how we're going to be judged according to works. But let's say if we go with our theory, that yes, I'll be judged according to works because I have works accredited to my account so I get in. He's like, the problem is we got this big middle part. And this big middle part is a transforming part where we're supposed to become more righteous. And he refers to this as sanctification. And it says it has to be reckoned with. You can't just ignore sanctification. So, please note. Think of it this way. Our, our original problem is justified by faith, judged according to works. Now we have to add an, a separate problem. Are you ready? Justification as imputed righteousness. Sanctification as practical righteousness. Justification, imputed righteousness, sanctification, practical righteousness. Now, why is there a conflict? Let me state it again. Can you have one without the other? And if you cannot have one without the other, doesn't that contradict the first one? What's the first one? Imputed righteousness. If I don't have sanctification, does that destroy my first one? Well, wait a minute. That would make my first one on practical righteousness. This creates the theological problem. Okay? All right? Now, this, this is where I get very frustrated with Christianity. We shouldn't be the ones in a little small church in the middle of nowhere off Highway 83 where nobody could ever find us being the ones struggling with this problem. Every church on the face of the planet should be struggling with this problem and there should be a far better articulation of this problem. These problems, I'm telling you, if you read books, it's like, here's justification. And you're like, okay, amen. I got that definition down of justification. But you never are confronted with, wait a minute, I'm judged according to works. Wait a minute. All these verses say I have to be sanctified. How does this work? Right? But here we go. Paul absolutely expected his converts not only to be accounted righteous, but also to be transformed into better people. Paul didn't just say, hey, you're accounted righteous, you're good to go. Paul was like, no, you're accounted righteous, but you better become righteous. How do we reconcile the two? Now, he's going to go through a lot of, a lot of passages here. You ready? All right. We're going to try to do our best to work through these. All right. Here's, and this is all going to be Paul. Remember, his argument is that, and let me state it again. Paul expected converts. Not only to be accounted righteous, but to be transformed into better people. He's going to prove that now with a list of things. You ready to prove this point? Here's number one. Paul uses the language of transformation slash metamorphosis 
for what has happened and continues to happen to Christians. Paul uses the language of transformation and metamorphosis for what has happened to has, has happened and continues to happen to Christians. And he's going to give us two passages to look at. You ready? Everybody should know the first one. It's in Romans. Do what? He said Romans 2. Remember what he said. Transformation and metamorphosis. Chapter 12. Very good. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. All right. Now, I'm going to offer... I'm going to offer my own critique of the use of these verses. Now, this is very important. All right, so everybody stop and pay attention to me. This is very important. Whenever you read a Christian book and they throw some scriptures in there for proof, they, he does this, everyone does this. They usually don't give you the scripture. They just give you the reference. They don't write out the text. I hate when they do that, right? Because he t- basically is telling you, this is what Paul does in these verses. You don't need to read them. I hate that. Now, I understand why you don't include them because the book would be thousands of pages long. However, it's, it's absolutely the responsibility of anyone who reads a book like this to go actually look at the scriptures, because he's made a big statement, right? His big statement is, Paul teaches justification by faith alone, but he expects you to be transformed. And he's making an argument that this seems to go against the previous statement, therefore we're in a dilemma. We're going to look at these verses and see, do they really create a dilemma? Or is there a simple explanation to make these verses work with the fact that we're justified by faith alone? So let's look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He only quotes two, but I I think we need one. Don't you agree? Because two starts with the word and. So I think we need verse 1. Here's Paul. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Stop there. All right, he's talking to Christians. I beseech you. What's the idea of I beseech you? Please, I beg you, I'm imploring you, right? Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, all right, what is he using as the, what's the motivation to do what he's about to do? God's mercy. God's mercy has been expressed in all the chapters leading up to 12. And how has it been expressed? His mercy has been expressed in the fact that we are saved, not by what we do, but by what Christ has done. So based off those mercies, Paul is now imploring people to do what? Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your... Now stop here. I want you to see this. Now this, this cannot be, I'm not going to say this, this solution resolves all the problems, but I want you to see why this one should not be a complicated. Is he claiming it will happen? Absolutely not. Is he claiming that it happens naturally? Absolutely not. In fact, what is he doing? Please. I'm imploring you. Now this immediately, you can't ignore this, right? Because the way most Christians say, remember how he kind of argued? If you're justified, you will be transformed. That's not, I will be. (laughs) Right? I beseech you. It would be like, hey guys, guess what's going to happen? Now because of the mercies of God, you're going to be transformed. Now what do you have to do here? 
that ye, ye, you, do what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your that's something you have to do. It doesn't say it's going to naturally happen. He's saying it. you have to do it. And I think we can argue, were the believers in Corinth always presenting their bodies as a living sacrifice? No. Now, were they not saved? People like MacArthur comes along. The, many of the schools I went to, I was like, no, they were carnal. and car- There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. They were lost. That gets into a whole interpretive argument over, over Corinth. Right? Catholics would say the same thing. Hey, if you, if you commit that mortal sin, you're out of state of grace, you're not saved. Well, wait a minute. He, he just referred to them as what? Brethren. And the implication is, I'm challenging you. Now, we don't know how Paul thinks in this regard. Paul, if someone says, hey, I'm not going to present my body as a living sacrifice, would Paul still say they're saved? I don't know, but I will argue that he's calling them brethren and he's imploring them. And in verse 2, the one they want us to see, and it's interesting, he didn't cite one. Because one changes my whole view of this, correct? Two, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. Now, okay, I... Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. Does this naturally happen? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That seems to imply that I've got to be involved in this process. I've got to be involved. I've got to renew my mind. I've got to do something. I got to present my body as a living sacrifice and I have to not, and not be conformed to this world. That's telling them not to be conformed. That means they're involved in the process. You either conform yourself or you, everyone knows conformity versus anti conformity. Everyone knows it. I'm always arguing about it. Plenty of people are the, are the they're in the conform line, right? Here, conform. Just fall, and there's some of us who are in the anti-conform line, and we're not even going to be—we're not even going to face the same way because we're not going to go along with that conform line. They're not going to do it. You're, that's your responsibility. The renewing of your mind is your responsibility. And how do most Christians believe the renewing of your mind takes place? Now, does he does he seem to imply that that's going to happen naturally? No. Now, well, I do agree with the book on this. He, assu- he believes it should happen. Okay, I got no argument with that. He does believe it should happen because of God's mercy should lead you to do it. I got no problem with that. The issue is, if it doesn't happen, what does that mean? Do I? Right. Well, yeah, I think we can make the, the argument. Now, he's trying to draw attention. I don't think there's attention here at this point. Now, I'm not saying we don't get, get one, but you see how we're going to have to, you see how you have to look at each passage in its context, right? You see how long this could take to try to resolve? Because it's going to, listen, whatever solution we come up with, I want to make sure everybody understands this, is going to require 
a completely new reading of every passage of Scripture you have ever read. The evidential side says what? The, the lordship evidential side, how do they read Romans 12, 1 and 2? If you don't do this, you're not saved. That's the evidential argument. So when I stand before God, what is he going to look at? Did you present your body a living sacrifice? Were you transformed? Did you renew your mind? Oh, no evidence. You're not saved. Justification by faith would be like, I was called to do this. I was supposed to do this. However, my salvation is not based off my transformation. It's based off the, accounted, the imputed righteousness that Christ gave. Does this contradict what we read in Romans 4? I don't think it does. That's only one verse. We've got pages and pages of verses to work through. All right. Here's the next one. 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is this one's weird. 2 Corinthians 3.18. I would definitely... I don't know why he didn't go with the, the go-to verse here. What, what verse did he, he should have went with? What verse would you, if you were going to use to prove the point he's trying to prove, what verse would you would have gone with? Can anybody think of another one that you should have went with instead of 2 Corinthians 3.18? Do you remember his point? Paul uses the language of transformation and metamorphosis for what has happened and continues to happen to Christians. He uses Romans 12 too. What other verse would you use to prove his point? Okay, there we go. Someone said it. Anyone in Christ is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Anybody know where that verse is? Tell me when you find it. It's in Corinthians. I'm not going to tell you if it's first or second. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible, other than John 3, 16, Psalm 23. This verse is quoted in every Protestant church a billion times a year. Okay, people on the internet is going to be like, what in the world is going on? The people are just pretending not to know so that all the people online seem really smart. If you need help, just look up. The... All right, first or second? Second Corinthians 5, 17. All right, we've talked about this. Remember, my interpretation of Second Corinthians 5, 17 is, is legendary and controversial. Okay, yeah we, yeah, we sing it too. Okay, Second Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, that one is problematic. Would everyone agree? Why is, why is 2 Corinthians 5.17 more problematic than Romans 12.2? It will. It happens. Romans seems to say, hey, come on, Diane, I beseech you. Come on, present your body. Be renewed. Come on, Diane, do it. Here it's like, hey, Diane... You're a new creature, old things are passed away, right? Now, 
I argued that, that's, that that interpretation, the way it looks, is wrong. And why did I argue against the normal interpretation of 2 Corinthians 5.17? Why did I argue against it? I argued against reality, right? All you claim to be Christians. If you're a Christian, then you should be a new creature. Old things are going to pass away. Everything, all the old is gone. Well, how many times in your life does the old still show up? Old way of thinking, old attitudes, old sin. It shows up. That can't be true. So what interpretation did I give of 2 Corinthians 5.17? Do I? This speaks of your position in Christ. New creature, old things have passed away, all things are new because you are now considered righteousness. And so I am to view you that way. And we did that by going verse by verse through the whole chapter. Now, trust me, it's controversial. Anyone who hears my messages in 2 Corinthians 5.17, you should see emails I receive. But you know what I always tell people? Don't argue with me. Your email, the way, you're, you, the way some of the emails speak to me, well, I'm like, you're proving you're not a new creature because they'll be like, you're an idiot and you're going to burn in hell, you moron. Okay, well, you're a new creature. <laughs> Thank you for emailing me. Woohoo! You prove your point. Like sometimes I hate when people argue me with some things like that because it's like, don't argue with me. Just prove to me that you can do it. All right? And so that, so this one is... And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. What about it? Well, they, the, 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 the people who interpret 17 the way that they interpret it is they would argue that, that way. The, the answer to resolving this problem, it goes back to verse uh, 15. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man. Everybody see verse 15? Or 16, wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we know him no more. In other words, we see and know people differently. Spiritually, we view them differently. We don't view them in the flesh. That's the key. 18, uh, some people would argue, yes, uh, they are, most people would argue 17 is the work of God. And we're not arguing who did verse 17. The issue is, obviously, it's not true in the way people interpret it, because if it was true, all Christians would be 1,000% different, and we know that is not true. I mean, just think about when you first became a Christian. Now, they, they act like this is an instantaneous thing. Think about when you first became a Christian. The things instantaneously just... Whoosh. Now, for some people, it's dramatic, but even in the dramatic thing, yeah, you know, I've talked about it before. Um, you know, uh, teenagers at uh, First Baptist Church, they got saved. You know, their lives did change, but then they're up at Allslips right, right there, you know, handing out tracts to people going in while they're smoking a cigarette. One, I think, was smoking marijuana, you know, you know, handing out tracts. And you're like, that's just ridiculous. That's, whoa, slow down. Okay? It may be ridiculous to you, but if you came from a drug background, doing a little marijuana is not that big a deal. Now, they were actually out handing out tracts while you were probably home sleeping. So, do you condemn that? Well, yeah, you do want to come along and go, okay, come here, man, come on. 
Come here. Come here. Okay. Come on. This is probably not the best idea. But do I? But, but you see, they're obviously we're not a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new because they're still retaining old ways, old habits. It's a process. So 2 Corinthians 5.17, that's the one he should have used. He didn't use that one. Yeah, that's the one I thought. When I saw second ground, I'm like, that's where he's going. And I'm like, 318, but we'll have to stop and get to 318 in a minute. All right, so let's summarize this. Right, everybody ready? Here's what we've got. We're still trying to resolve justified by faith, judged according to works. We thought we have a solution that we mentioned on Wednesday, which says, yes, I am justified by faith. And what works will be judged? The works of Christ that are imputed to my account. That sounds good, right? Now, what do, we have to pr- what do we have to do to still prove our theory? Number one, we have to prove our definition of justification. I think, second, uh, I think Romans 4 comes close to helping us. Agreed? Philippians 3 does a lot of other verses. However, what, what's, going to, what's going to be the one thing we will not be able to 100% prove? We're not going to find a verse that says God judges the works of Christ on our behalf. We're not going to find that. That's problematic. Well, to, for us to state that, we're just using logic, right? We're just using logic to try to state that. Okay. But no matter what we do there, we run into a second problem. What is the second problem? Justification, imputed righteousness versus sanctification, practical righteousness. And we have to ask the question, can one be justified and yet never be sanctified? If you say no, they can't, what have you just argued? In order to be justified, you must be sanctified. And sanctification involves work and change, which makes it a part of justification. And you merge the two together, which Protestants claim we never do because we're so much better than those dumb Catholics, right? We've got it all figured out. They're all morons, even though most Protestants wouldn't know Catholic theology if it hit them across the head. But we're so smart that we know they're wrong. Wait a minute. We merge the two together all the time, do we not? Just like I gave the example with the whole Kanye situation this week. Well, you know, we've got to wait and see. Oh, so how, how is Kanye going to prove his justification? By his sanctification. Now, he proves his justification because the album is a piece of garbage and all Christian music usually is garbage. So he pretty much proves he's saved now, okay, because he went from a genius to substandard. I don't know what the garbage that is. But that's a whole different story. We won't get into my review of the record, okay, because you wouldn't like it, okay. In fact, nobody, all the Christians are mad at me for my review of the album, but that's okay. Non-Christians probably think I'm right. but But that's a whole different story. All right, any questions there? We're, 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 we see we kind of create, we fixed a problem, and then what did we do? Walked right into another. But the book warned us it was going to happen. It's like you're, you're just going to walk right into another problem because there is no way. This is, a, this is a maze in which we cannot find our way out. So all we're going to be able to do is establish some points. And what's going to be the key point in all of this? Let me state it again. What is going to be the key point in all of this? Definition of justification. Let me state it again. Your definition of justification is the key point. All right? Now, you've got to define, you've got to make sure your definition of justification is what? Proven biblically. 
Okay? If you can't prove that, then that's where we stop. All right, let's stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, as we continue to try to resolve this problem, Lord, I pray that you give us patience. You give us the ability to look at each scripture and analyze it and see if it's being used correctly. And Lord, help, help us try to find the correct answer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...